Welcome to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We believe that Jesus is needed and relevant for people in Vancouver today. The message of God's love and promise of wholeness was destined to be experienced within a faith community that worships, studies scripture, and prays together. We warmly welcome you to journey with us towards greater connection, purpose, and peace. We'll be sharing our recorded services and conversations with health and wellness experts. Enjoy. So last week, I gave you a heads up that we're doing a two-part series called Stay or Go. And we talked uh, extensively last Sabbath about the spiritual gift of patience, endurance under hardship, how we as Christians can expect a degree of persecution, a degree of hatred, oppression for our faith. And in particular, we looked at the story of Paul on uh, a ship that was being battered by stormy seas for weeks on end. And yet how the charge to him was to stay with the ship, even when it's sinking. But remember that we discerned that there were two indicators for when we need to remain, when we need to hold fast, when we need to uh, dig deep and be resilient and endure. And that is when we have a clear indication from God. So in Paul's case, he relayed to the sailors. He had had a vision in which an angel told him, stay with the ship. Everyone must stay with the ship in order to be saved so that no lives are lost. And even when some tried to escape in a little lifeboat, uh, they, cut the ropes because they understood the power of Paul's God and the severity of that message. And it's true, as the ship broke apart, uh, some were saved even by the remnants of those shipboards. The other qualifying factor was that remaining with the ship, though battered and sinking until the very end, was essential for their salvation. But today I want to talk to you about Um, more difficult matters to address, and that is um, often uh, we are are guilty as a church. We are guilty of misunderstanding this principle of endurance. The uh, charge to echo Christ's endurance and suffering on the cross, and we covered that last week as well, that though he was afflicted, Jesus was no victim. He was no slave to sin. He was the victor of sin. But sadly, uh, in our churches, in Christian homes and families, we, we blanket apply this principle of endurance, of resilience. And it has led to people staying in abusive situations where I fear that both the salvation of the abuser by enabling and also the salvation of the victim by depression and discouragement comes into jeopardy. So today we're going to talk about some biblical principles and some biblical accounts on when uh, God calls us to not endure but to exit or escape. First of all, I want to just break down some real statistics because we tend not to talk about this uh, in our church. And I am very proud that the North American Division for several years now has held uh, an End It Now Summit 
for pastors and principals and, and church staff and church leaders to understand, to increase their awareness and be empowered and trained on how to respond when there is a situation of abuse that comes to light. And also to understand the variety of abuse that can occur. Yes, there's emotional abuse, financial abuse, physical abuse, we often think of, of violence, but in a church in particular, we have to think about spiritual abuse. And abuse is any time in which control and manipulation and the spirit of fear dominates over that spirit of love, which we are called to emulate. Again, scripture says the world will know we are Christ's disciples, his followers, his people, by how we treat each other, how we love each other. And 1 Corinthians 13 unpacked that for us on just what love looks like. It is an enduring love. It is a long-suffering love, but it is not a controlling love. In Canada, one woman every single week will lose her life at the hands of an intimate partner, usually in her home. One woman a week is killed. Her life is taken in a violent, uh, abusive encounter. Th these are real statistics that we have to face here in our context is that the church is not immune, Christian families are not immune, and in particular, there are four really vulnerable populations um, that see a heightened susceptibility and experiences of abuse. Those four populations include um, indigenous people and those who have a cultural history of oppression. They include people in rural communities with lack of access and resources. They occur when there is a language barrier, often amongst refugees and immigrants. Um, and lastly, we see heightened abuse when people are socially isolated. So that makes it especially prevalent and concerning right now during this pandemic, during the COVID-19 restrictions. And the World Health Organization, the Canadian government, our provincial government, uh, advocacy groups, all over have recognized that in particular, women are suffering greater risk during the last few months for domestic abuse and violence in their homes where they're trapped uh, and, and feel a, even a less uh, accessibility to resources, to means of escape, because not everyone feels as comfortable or free to open their home. Uh, shelters have greater restrictions Every single week, there's at least 300 women, mothers, children who are turned away from shelters because they are out of space. They lack a room. So what can we do as a church? How can we respond? Well, uh, I want to encourage you, first and foremost, that there are some very strong biblical principles, even examples from Jesus about setting clear boundaries and not being taken advantage of. I want to remind you that um, in the Gospels, we see a few occurrences where Jesus set firm boundaries. In Mark 3, he's, he's preaching, he's drawing crowds, but they're starting to suffocate him. They're starting to stifle him. And he has to get into a boat in order to create some space between the pressure of the people and his purpose to deliver this message. 
in uh, Mark 3, sorry, Mark 4 is when he's on the boat, and Mark 3, a chapter earlier, is when his family is calling him and putting family pressure and family demands. Hey, come, you know, your family is gathered and we're waiting for you. Where are you? Um, they're being demanding of his time and his attention. And Jesus actually says no to his family. He recognizes that making that decision to bend and buckle to their pressure, to their sort of domineering ways, to that even sense of obligation is going to derail his mission. Again, it's going to affect the salvation of others. And so he puts firm boundaries and he actually um, refuses to go with uh, the invitation to be with his family or the pressure to be with his family. And in John chapter 7, we read about how um, Jesus avoided Judea. Again, we, uh, we talked about throughout his life, you know, there are times when Jesus will go to Jerusalem. There's times where he leaves it, depending on his safety and security. And John 7 is just one of those examples where he does not go into Judea for his personal safety. It is not yet his time to surrender his life. I also want to take you uh, a little bit backwards in scripture to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Here we have the account of a, of a young wife named Abigail. And in 1 Samuel chapter 25, uh, David is on the run from, from King Saul. And he's moving about with his men, sometimes um, 200 of them in number. And he finds himself uh, in the fields of Nabal. And Nabal has uh, tons of sheep and sheep herders. And while David's men are camping in the fields, they're offering protection to these shepherds and their flocks. So after uh, some time passes, you know, David's run out of his rations and his supplies. So he sends word through the shepherds. Hey, please reach out to your master and see if he can spare some extra rations, some extra food. He understood it was shearing time. Um, this was a prosperous time for landowners, for herd owners. And yet, um, you know, Nabal it means foolish. And so as these shepherds come, they make their appeal and say, look, these soldiers have been protecting us from robbers, from wolves. Um, can't we extend them some grace? Can we um, share some of this abundance which we are now reaping in the, in the shearing season? And the ball just kind of laughs them off. Um, you can read about it in verse 9 to 12. He's just like, who is this David? And, and why should I feel obligated to uh, support or share any of my goods with them? So the shepherds are going to make their way back and tell David what has happened. But... One of the servants who's overheard this exchange is smart enough to reach out to Nabal's wife. And they tell Abigail. And they explain the whole situation. They said, here's a whole bunch of hangry soldiers. And all they wanted was a bit of food, uh, a bit of restorative energy. And, you know, the master, Nabal, he's just so stubborn, he's so foolish, he's so greedy, he's actually said no to them. So then, verse 18, we're going to read, Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, 
five measures of grain and a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs. She loaded them onto a donkey and she said to her young men, go ahead and I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Verse 20, as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, David and his men were coming towards her. So he already got the message and he's going to meet with this uh, landowner face to face and he's going to take what he feels uh, he deserves for his service of protection. Because David had said, surely it was in vain that I protected all these fellow has in the wilderness. Nothing went missing out of everything that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. But God do so to David, even more so if by morning I leave as much as one male alive from all who belong to him. So when Abigail saw David, she hurried, got off her donkey, and fell before him on her face, bowing to the ground. She said, Upon me, O my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak to your ears and hear the words of this servant. My Lord, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow Nabal for as his name is so he is Nabal is his name and folly is with him but I your servant did not see the young men you sent my lord now then my lord as the as long as the lord our god lives and you should live yourself since the lord has restrained you from the bloodshed and from taking vengeance with your own hand. Now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil be like Nabal. And let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow you. Please forgive this trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting battles for the Lord, and evil will not be found in you as long as you live. If anyone should rise up and pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord will be bound in the bundle of the living under the care of the Lord our God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out from the hollow of a sling. little reference there to that infamous moment where David took down a giant with a sling. When the Lord has done so according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, you will have no cause for grief or pangs of a guilty conscience for having shed the blood without cause or for having saved yourself. When the Lord our God has dealt with you, then remember me, your servant. And David replied, Blessed be the Lord our God who sent you to meet me, Blessed be your good sense, and blessed be you who has kept me from bloodshed and from avenging myself by my own hand. For surely as the Lord God lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come to meet me, truly by morning, nothing would be left to Nabal's name, not a single male. And David received the gift and uh, he was content, his soldiers were satisfied. And when Abigail returns home, she's honest. She's honest and she sees her husband feasting and just ignorant and unaware of how narrowly um, him and his household, his servants, their community has escaped danger, the wrath of this uh, uh, about to be king. And so she relays 
the truth of the situation and he is struck in with either a stroke or a heart attack and a few days later he dies. The reason why I think it's important to contemplate this passage of scripture is because we often are, are focused or are um, preached to from, from Paul's writings uh, particularly in Ephesians, where um, scripture is manipulated to say that uh, women just need to submit and be subservient to their husbands. Here we have a clear example of a wife who understood that her husband was flagrantly abusing his power. He was not living righteously and according to God's ways. And she defied his will she defied his intentions she defied his orders and she uh went she did not stay but she left that situation to correct the situation in order again to save not only herself but the entire households so there are times in which exiting in which escape becomes part of our salvation story I want to just um, draw attention to something that we still struggle with in this denomination, despite having a, a conference president who called out errant theology, uh, male headship theology, as an errant doctrine, as a, as a teaching that is not aligned with biblical scripture uh, when you take it as a holistic work. And yet, still in this denomination, we struggle with this notion of male headship theology. And studies have shown that denominations, congregations in which male headship theology is prevalent, people are wired to not only um, abuse their power in their family relationships, but also to avoid reaching out and seeking help seeing that this is just their lot in life, is to be a punching bag, to be uh, absorb all of the um, abuses that are coming their way, um, just to be an, an outlet you know, for anger and uh, frustration and stress. And there is nothing in scripture uh, that uh, condones that kind of practice. Uh, on the other hand, we find multiple scriptures that condemn the abuse of power. Jesus' whole principle of his kingdom was not to uh, abuse his power, not to take any entitlements, even though if there was anyone deserving of them, he was. And instead, uh, to lay down his power, to serve, and to uplift the oppressed. His whole platform was to bring freedom to those who were marginalized, those who were in a weakened state, those who were uh, without options, it seemed, those who were suffering uh, beyond uh, what they uh, incurred, beyond sort of the consequences of their own actions, but were just suffering under the weight of this broken and sinful world. While we don't see the word uh, abuse directly relayed in scripture, we do find a lot of texts about oppression. Last week we talked about the Greek word that means endure, which means remain under a weight, remain under the burden. But oppression means that the burden is crushing you. It's literally draining your life power and your life reserves. 
and it is coming at the, the hands of somebody in authority, in a position that is higher and above. And Psalm, 90, Psalm 56 reminds us that God is on the side of the oppressed. He is close to the brokenhearted. The scriptures clearly demonstrate that God is invested in a dramatic transformation of society for those who feel uh, uh, unjustly treated. We find this throughout uh, the Gospels. And we see that Jesus, just like uh, Abigail's intervention, he refuses. His method is not to repay violence for violence. It is not about a retribution or retaliation. Often, Jesus, in the face of his own accusers and oppressors, would first retreat. This was a new revolution that Jesus modeled himself. He gave up his privilege to empower the vulnerable and he calls upon us to do the same as his disciples as the uh, as his um, young men his young followers wanted to call down like thunder from heaven and destroy those who um, they felt were not getting on board with the program uh, you know Jesus reminded them this is not the way of my my kingdom he said look at the Romans uh, you know they lorded over you, the fact that they have power, the fact that they can control you, the fact that they're in charge. And he said very clearly, it is not to be so among my people. It is not to be this way in the kingdom of God. We um, must open our eyes and we must see uh, the, the trauma, the imbalance of power, the struggle that the people in our churches are experiencing and going through. Only when power is used to enhance somebody else's freedom is it used well. Jesus dismantled the systems of domination and his life really provided an alternative uh, for what was the practice then and I would say what is a common practice now, which is you know to, to uh, engage in screaming matches, to engage in online debates, to throw shade back and forth at one another. Instead, uh, Jesus came preaching a more peaceful way, a more uh, uh, sort of unexpected and mysterious way in which he says, do kindly to your enemy, bring them food, bring them water. In this way, you're heaping burning embers, burning coals upon their head metaphorically as you treat them with respect and kindness. And we can stand up for what is right. We can intervene. We can advocate and still do so in a way that is respectful and still in a way that um, understands that there is still a dignity in a human behind maybe what we disagree with or behind some evil practices. Again, I want to stress that in a situation of abuse, whether that is physical, emotional, financial, or spiritual, the abuser uh, is empowered and lacks accountability if this continues, if nobody intervenes, if nobody advocates, if nobody speaks up and exerts their boundaries. And particularly if this is happening in a family, children, even though they may not be the target of that abuse, 
are going to suffer the consequences. Children are deeply scarred and often struggle with psychological trauma when they are simply hear the abuse that happens, not even being a direct witness, but just being in the environment of abuse. In this case, biblically, this kind of suffering does not have any redemptive value in and of itself. In the gospel, we see how um, Jesus encourages his disciples to step up, to advocate. He models for them these principles of relieving suffering. In the Gospel of Luke, we come across this incredible account of Jesus and a woman who's been suffering for 18 years. She's bent over. She can't stand upright. And he calls her. He invites her. Uh, to come close enough that he might touch her and heal her. This is a God, this is a Savior who liberates us from our affliction, who even on the Sabbath um, put himself at risk for accusation for his actions because he was demonstrating that this is a God who gave us the Sabbath for the purpose of salvation. And we should spend our Sabbath engaged in activities that not only liberate our souls, but can also uh, be agents and conduits and, and bridges for other people's liberation. When we examine spiritual abusers, we often see a few underlying traits. One is there is personal brokenness, there's personal hurt, there's personal insecurity. What I fear also puts us at risk in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination is that abusers often have a tendency towards perfectionism and uh, un unreasonable expectations. They're very performance-oriented, and their evaluation of themselves and others are connected to that performance assessment. There's also always this need for power and control and you really cannot have pure love and control existing simultaneously in the same moment. There's this sense and this feeling that uh, from the abuser that they need to look good or competent in the eyes of others. Often it's uh, combined with a narcissistic personality trait, um, but it also makes it particularly dangerous and people susceptible in the church because um, we're not too good at uh, letting down our guard and taking off the masks. We often feel uh, that we have to live up to this sort of perfect, righteous, uh, scrubbed, pure, and clean persona. And that can make those early interventions the support from counselors and professional therapists and, and even spiritual mentors um, avoided by people's inability to kind of admit where they're struggling, to confess those sins, to confess uh, that brokenness, to repent from it and work towards true reconciliation and a life surrendered to God's transforming love. And again, we see in the cases of abuse, whether that's physical, emotional, financial, or spiritual, this uh, domination, this 
manipulation that is driven by fear and not the kind of love that we find in 1 Corinthians 13. So I hope this, this time together to be honest, to reflect, to look at the, this concerning topic um, in our church, in our society, in our communities, um, has done something for you, has made you um, reflect on whether or not you can play a role either in recognizing where you may have been a perpetrator of abuse, of power, recognizing where maybe you uh, have been susceptible to the abuses of others. And lastly, I really want to focus on how we can be uh, interveners instead of bystanders and stand up for those who find themselves uh, victims of abuse. There's a couple of ways I want to invite you to engage in that. One is if you feel that your local church, uh, in this case uh, OAC, could do something more for people who are uh, in an abusive relationship, whether that's helping fund counseling sessions or or creating an emergency relief fund in our local church budget, uh, please speak to that. Uh, secondly, um, intervene. If you have a neighbor and you are, are overhearing things that clearly are not healthy for an individual in that household, ring the bell, knock on the door, or report it to your local authority. And uh, thirdly, let's pray. Let's pray that we are a church who is open and sensitive and as devoted to the care of the vulnerable as Jesus was. There are a ton of resources. As I mentioned before, um, our North American division has an End It Now website where you can access their seminars and their uh, topics from this year's current sessions as well as previous years. Um, we have a local crisis line here in Vancouver that you can reach out to as well. Um, and we have, you know, a, a team of spiritual care elders. And amongst that, there is such diversity that I really believe um, you can find someone on that spiritual care team who is trustworthy, who will make it safe, um, and who will be supportive to you if you need to come forward about your situation or if you need uh, counsel in how to overcome your your position which has has been one of abuse of power um, if if today's uh, little fireside chat has in any way kind of triggered maybe something that you have tried to stifle or suppress in the past just invite you uh, to reach out to make sure that you have some supports around you this afternoon and um, to talk it through, to journal it through, to pray through it. Uh, but do not suffer in silence. God is not intended for us to uh, struggle alone. This is why he gave us this community. This is why he intended the church to come together, to support each other, to be a protective uh, and safe space for those who are most uh, in need and, and hurting. Uh, join me, if you will, one more time uh, as we just seek the Lord's uh, power and, uh, and courage uh, as we tackle these decisions of when it is no longer uh, noble, when it is no longer right, when it is no longer redemptive to stay, but when we have to face uh, the hard choice to go. 
Thank you for listening to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Learn more at oacvancouver.ca. If you're in Vancouver, join us for worship Saturdays at 11 a.m. at 5350 Bailey Street. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. God bless you and have a wonderful day.